you have your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 4. I'm going to begin a series now on the book of Luke. I'm going to skip the, the, the birth narrative because we went over that at Christmas. And I'm going to pick up next week with John the Baptist and, and talk about preparing the way of the Lord. Next week, I will do an overview of the book of Luke, give you some background behind it, and, and really give you uh, just some information that you need to kick off this study of Luke. We're going to take our time and go through it. We're not going to be in any hurry. Uh, I really feel like it's important to study Gospels. Uh, I, I toyed with just doing words in red, the things that Jesus spoke, but I feel like the Gospel story are so important and so many of us aren't even familiar with them and so we're going to just go through the book of Luke but because I promised you we are in a time of fasting for those of you who are new and haven't joined us before uh, probably as long as I don't know who's been with me the longest where's Karen, oh, Karen Vogel's not here Karen McKeithra, we've probably been doing this for, what, 20 years, I would, 18, 18 years. Uh, we have uh, used the month of January, I've called a corporate fast. Uh, I believe in first fruits. I believe that uh, God wants us, that's what tithing, that's why we have Leah teaching about tithing, because God wants the first fruits of our life. He wants the first fruits of our increase. And let me tell you, if you are sitting here tonight, I just went to the funeral uh, of, of my nephew, my niece's husband, who died of COVID. He left behind two young boys, and I'm telling you, I sat in that funeral thinking, if you are here tonight and sitting here or can hear my voice, you have been blessed with another year of life, and it's a blessing. If you're sitting here living and breathing, it's an increase in your life, and you and I are called to give God the first fruits of our increase, and that's why I call people to a corporate fast the beginning of January. We give the first 36 and a half days of the new year to the Lord in the form of a fast. We deny our flesh something in order to set apart. Biblical fasting is denying your flesh in order to seek God, to, to, to sharpen yourself spiritually. Spiritually. And so uh, because we're in the, what is today, the 10th of January, we're 10 days into our biblical fast, our 36 and a half days of fasting. I promised that I would address fasting tonight in some way. And so the passage that we've jumped ahead in Luke to look at, I've done that for the very purpose uh, of talking to you about fasting. There's reference to Jesus fasting in this passage. And so I chose that in order to, uh, to just give you a little background on fasting even as I teach through the book of Luke. So we'll back up next week into Luke chapter 3. But tonight uh, we're going to look at Luke. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, <laughs> returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Whether that was actual or whether it was a vision, most commentators think it was a vision. 
And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, now look at that, when he had, entered, had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went throughout the surrounding region. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Amplified says, then Jesus, full of and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Oh, don't you want to be, anybody besides me, want to be full of and controlled by the Holy Spirit? The Amplified says, now Jesus, full of and in perfect communication with the Holy Spirit. I, I like that. You see, Jesus lived his life and his ministry, laying aside his divine nature and all that came with it and limiting himself to live in the same way that you and I are expected to live every day. As spirit-filled men and women, completely relying on and trusting in the empowerment, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk out the life that God has commanded us to walk out. And that cannot be done unless we fully uh, rely on and are controlled and are in perfect communication with the Holy Spirit. We need to learn to surrender to his leadership and lean on and rely on him. It's, it's not a coincidence that Luke begins this temptation narrative this way. He wants to make sure we know that Jesus, even though he was fully God, he now was was fully surrendering to the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as David Garland said, it's going to reinforce that Jesus will be guided in his ministry by the Holy Spirit rather than by Satan who seeks to preempt the Spirit's role. Do you know that you have an enemy? And he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And his whole purpose, his number one goal is to preempt the Spirit's role and guidance in our life. Don't be unaware. So Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Don't miss that. The, the wilderness here represents the place of testing uh, of Israel's covenant loyalty to God. It's a picture of what Israel went through when they came out of Egypt and, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It's a, it's a picture of that, a, a place where, well, where we all know that did not end well for them. That they were in the wilderness and they constantly questioned God's faithfulness. 
They constantly rebelled against his word. They accused God of not meeting their needs adequately. And they bowed down to other gods and got caught up in idolatry. And now Jesus is going to show how it's possible to live something entirely different. To be in the wilderness of life. To be in a place of temptation. To be in a place where, where you don't understand what God's doing and still serve him loyally. Verse 2. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. The devil. Contrary to what many people think, the devil is real. And he doesn't wear a red suit and carry a pitchfork. The Bible clearly teaches of the existence of evil, whether you think so or not. The word devil, if you return, if you take off the, the letter D out of devil, you will have what he's really about. He's the personification of evil. But he didn't start out that way. Do you know that? He was once Lucifer, who, who was an angel of God. He once enjoyed sweet fellowship with God and communion with God. He, he was perfect. He was created by God perfectly. But then he chose to rebel against God. He, he wanted to be like God. He, he wanted to be worshipped like God. And, and instead of seeking to make God supreme and honor him alone and, and give him glory in everything he did, he wanted glory for himself. We, we can make the same mistake. And so he rebelled against God's authority. And when he rebelled, he, was immediate, he immediately fell from heaven. And the Bible says that he took one-third of all the angels with him. In his rebellion, he convinced one-third of the angels to go with him. Those angels are now what, what are known as demons. Demons are simply fallen angels. Matthew 24 tells us that hell was, was prepared for Satan and his demons. It was never God's will that any of us go to hell. It was God's will that none of us perish, but that we all have eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's his will. Hell was prepared for Satan and his demons. But God wants us to choose him. Satan is cunning and evil. He wants to take us with him just like he took a third of those angels with him. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He, he doesn't look like a, a bad guy in a red suit and a pitchfork. He's not that obvious. He disguises himself as an angel of light. His whole goal is to set himself against God and his people. He entices. He lures. He wants us to renounce our allegiance to God, our allegiance to God's word, and he wants us to obey him and not God. Henry Ironside, one of my favorite commentators, says, why did God create such an evil being? He did not create him as an evil spirit, but as a pure and innocent angel. He abode not in the truth. Like the other angels, he was created in innocence, but temptation came. The temptation to exalt himself. And so he fell and became the enemy of God and man. His judgment has already been declared, but before it's carried out, God has chosen to permit him a certain measure of power in liberty and order that men may be tested to find out whether they prefer Satan's service 
or whether to live in love and devotion to the God who created them. I'm going to say that again. That Satan has now been permitted by God to have a, 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 an ounce of power, some power, some liberty, that men may be tested to find out whether they prefer Satan, uh, Satan's service or whether they prefer to live in love and devotion to the God who created them. Ironside says, you may take your choice, but if you choose Satan as your master here, you must share his doom for eternity. For hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, that is, his messengers. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. We only read here of three temptations, but Scripture says, in fact, Luke adds that, that he, the devil had ended every temptation. He had thoroughly tested Jesus. He went through the whole gamut of temptation, not just these three. He was tempted, commentators agree, for the entire 40 days. It's interesting to me, we, we started in chapter 4, verse 1 tonight, but if you back up, just turn there with me right now to chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. I won't read them, but just scan them with me, because this is super important that you notice this. Luke does this. The, the, this, this narrative is, uh, this, this temptation narrative is listed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Luke does something that the other gospel writers uh, don't do. If you look at chapter 3, verses 23, it's important that you take note that prior to this temptation narrative, Luke makes sure that he lists once again, remember, he listed it in the very beginning, but he's listing once again Jesus' genealogy. Why does he do this? I think it's super important. I think it's strategic. Look at verse 23. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years, being as it was supposed, the son of Joseph. So Jesus, he starts as the son of Joseph, or so it was supposed. Then he lists all the generations uh, that were prior. Do you see that? All of those, that list goes down through chapter verses 24 through 37. He lists all the generations prior. But then look what he says in verse 38. Jesus was the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's important. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy the, all the way back to the first Adam. And if you recall the temptation of the first Adam in the Garden of Eden, you know it did not end well. Remember, Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The first Adam failed miserably when he was tempted by the devil. But Jesus, whose who scripture, by the way, describes as the second Adam, calls the second Adam. How many of you know that? He came as the second Adam. He shows us that it's possible to respond victoriously to the devil's temptations. What Adam, the first Adam, could not do, Jesus came in the very form of a man to prove to us that it's possible to face the temptations of Jesus, uh, the temptations of the devil, and not succumb to them. Because he's in the power of the Holy Spirit. But you see, that's where we go wrong. We want to go out and face the devil and be tempted by him. And we haven't even spent any time with Jesus. We haven't spent time in his word. We haven't prayed. We haven't sought his face. And yet we expect to face the very power of the devil without any power of our own. We let that power sit idle within us. 
but we got to plug into the power source. Just like the lamp that's sitting on my desk has no power of its own, it has to get plugged in. It can look really pretty. It can be there to serve a purpose, but unless it's plugged in to the power source, it doesn't have any. The Bible says that Christians can have a form of godliness, but deny the power therein. Do you know that you have everything you need for life and for godliness? You have everything you need to face the temptations of the devil and overcome them victoriously because Jesus was a man just like you and me. He was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, and yet he was without sin. Dave and I had a big debate about this. Dave is teaching through the book of Mark, and he came across the, the, the narrative, this, this uh, temptation narrative, and, and it says that Jesus was with the wild animals, with the angels and the wild animals. And he, he called me into his office and he said, Rhea, what do you think about this? And I said, oh, here's what I think. He said, no. He said, this is what I think. He said, I think the animals were there to comfort him and, and the animals were there to keep him company. And I'm like, no way. If he was a man in every way that you and I are, those wild animals, when he saw a rattlesnake, he had to say, ah, a rattlesnake. Because if he was a man in every way that you and I are, he did not say, come here, little rattlesnake, let me hold you. He did not say that. He might have said, I have power to trample on snakes and scorpions, and I can overcome all the power of the enemy, and nothing will in any way harm me. But I guarantee you that that animal was, was a temptation for him to take on fear. It was not a place of comfort for him. Do, do you see it? So, so Dave and I had, had this great debate over that one because I, I read that Jesus was like me in every way. That he could identify with me in every way. I'm afraid of rattlesnakes. And yet he was without sin. And he did it to prove to me, guess what, Rhea? I know exactly what you're going through. I know exactly what you're facing. I lived it. I was there. But I showed you that you can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to me that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention this story. I just wonder, this is just the way I study. But I just wonder why. How did they all have this story? I, I just wonder if they're all sitting around a campfire or they're all just sitting around talking and they say to Jesus, you know what, Jesus, you tell me not to do this, but the temptation is so great. I just don't know how to say no to that, Jesus. I don't know how to overcome that. And Jesus, well, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about the time that I was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let me tell you about what happened to me. And I wonder if they just sat around and Jesus said, and this is how I faced him, and this is how I fought him off, and this is what you need to do. I wonder if he said that to them. And that's why they all recorded it, almost word for word. In chapter 3, uh, we read that just prior to this, that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. He wasn't baptized because he needed to be. He, 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 because it, was about, it wasn't about repentance for him. He was without sin. He, he was doing it to identify with his people. 
And now he was going to identify with them in temptation because Hebrews 4.15, what I just quoted to you, says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2.17 says, for this reason, he had to be made like them, like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. We have a high priest in Jesus who can identify with us in every way. That's why he was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, to prove to us that it's possible to overcome the temptations of the devil and the power of the Spirit. What is a temptation? Charles Stanley, I think, gives the best definition. He says, it's an enticement to get a person to act contrary to God's will. That means every time I'm tempted, it is the devil enticing me to try to get me to act contrary to God's will. Chuck Smith uh, says, temptation is the suggestion that I leave God's path of the cross and eternal fulfillment for the path of indulgence and immediate fulfillment. Can I just tell you that your temptations, what the enemy comes at you with, are not going to be the same temptations I have. I might look at your temptations and, and say, that's nothing, no big deal. Why is that even a struggle for you? He's calculated. He knows exactly uh, what your weaknesses are. He knows exactly where your vulnerabilities are. You've heard me say this a million times. There's a scripture uh, in Job, I believe, where Satan uh, comes and he's in the throne room, which always strikes me that he's in the throne room of heaven. What's he doing there? And, and, and God says to him, Satan, where have you been? And he says, I've been roaming. This is my translation. He says, I've been roaming the earth looking for vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Do you know he's studying you? Do you know he knows your vulnerabilities? He knows your weaknesses. He knows exactly. He knows your sweet spot. How many of you golf and know what a sweet spot is? My boys are big golfers, and they'll tell you that a sweet spot is a place on the club where I wrote this down. I looked it up because I wanted to get it right. It's a specific area on the club face that golfers aim to strike because when they hit it perfectly, it gains the optimal results. They're like, I just hit the sweet spot because that ball just goes sailing and it's easy. Can I tell you, Satan's looking for your sweet spot and he knows exactly where it's at. Dave gave an illustration on Sunday that I love. He, he talked about a woodpecker and, and he says, you know, think about a woodpecker and how he makes that loud rat-a-tat-tat noise when he drills into trees and he's searching for bugs to eat and, and that noise always attracts attention. And he, and, and he says the secret of his success is simple. When a woodpecker finds a suitable tree, he begins to drill a hole. If the wood is too hard or no bugs are found, he simply moves over and starts again. And over and over he continues until he meets with success. Can I tell you that Satan uses temptation in your life and mine the same way? He'll try one temptation on us, and if it's not successful, if it's not the sweet spot, he'll move over and try something different. And he'll do it over and over and over. He'll keep prodding and keep tempting until he hits that sweet spot, a place that he can take advantage of and use for his advantage. The Greek uh, definition of that word temptation is so interesting to me. 
It means to try, to make a trial of, to test for the purpose of ascertaining his quality. To test for the purpose of ascertaining quality. Oh, man. That God allows the enemy. Remember, in Job, we see God say to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I have great confidence in him, basically. Man, do you not want God to be able to say that about you? You know, Satan, have you considered my servant Rhea? I have such trust in her that she'll remain loyal to me, that she is steadfast, that she won't deny me. To ascertain, to test in order to ascertain the quality. Peter, 1 Peter 1, I think it is, says that trials and tests and temptations come, guess why? To prove us genuine. To prove us genuine. To ascertain the quality of our faith. Oh, can I tell you, friends, if we want to be Christ-like, if we want to be godly followers who are committed to him, we must learn to resist temptation. To say no to the devil when he comes appealing. Don, where is that verse I asked you to put up? I don't want them all. I just want the first one. This is what he appeals to. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. This is what he comes tempting with. The lust of the flesh. <laughs> Indulge yourself. You deserve this. You have a right to this. Come on. Who's going to notice? Everybody else is doing it. The lust of the eyes. I want that. I want to look at her. I want to soak that in. I want that house. I want more money. I want a better job. Pride of life. Look at all of my degrees. Look at how great my children are. Look how wonderful my marriage is. Look at how smart I am. Look at how much scripture I know. Look at how powerful I am. Look at how godly I am. And he comes, and those are the three areas that I believe, and I think those areas fit in this temptation for, with Jesus. And he appeals to those areas. But Jesus has given us an example of how to resist those temptations. Because those temptations are coming to ascertain, to test us, to ascertain the quality in us, the quality of our faith. Temptation is going to be a part of life. We live in a fallen world. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us that Satan is the God of this world. Do you understand that? Do you understand that in the garden, Adam and Eve, they were given dominion, they were given authority, they were given power. And when they said yes to Satan and no to God, what happened? They surrendered that power and authority. They surrendered that dominion. And that's what Christ came to get back. He got back the keys to the kingdom. And, and he said, all authority I've given to you, it's given to me. And now he's given it to us. And do you understand that we surrender that authority to the devil every stinking time we say yes to him and no to God. Every single time that we know what God has told us to do and we let the enemy entice us to do something different. You see, the enemy is not threatened by your church attendance. You can go to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. You can quote scripture till you are blue in the face. He is not threatened by that. Do you know what he's threatened by? 
Intimacy. Intimacy. Connection. Can I tell you? I am intimate with this man. And there is nothing in me that would want to be disloyal to him. There is nothing. You tempt me all you want. I will not be disloyal to this man. There is nothing in me that ever wants to hurt him. There's nothing in me that, that doesn't want to please him. That's what intimacy does. And you see, the enemy is threatened by your intimacy with God when you say there is nothing in me that will be disloyal to him. There is nothing in me that won't do what he tells me to do. There is nothing in me that wants to break fellowship with me. There is with him. There is nothing in me that ever wants to hurt him. The enemy is threatened by your intimacy, and that's what he's after all the time. He wants you to renounce your faithfulness to God. He wants you to disobey God and obey him and his voice, his enticements. We're all subject to temptations of the flesh, the temptations of the devil, the temptations of this world. But just because we're tempted doesn't mean we have to give in to those temptations. But sadly, many Christians, myself included, live their whole life succumbing to temptation instead of realizing we have the power to overcome it. And Jesus in this passage demonstrates how to overcome temptation. One writer said this, I really like this. Our attitude toward temptation should be something like my dad's attitude towards stray dogs. If a stray dog came into our yard, dad would not allow us to feed it. He'd say, if you feed a stray, it makes its home in you, with you, and you'll never get rid of it. <laughs> That's temptation. If we feed it or even acknowledge it, if we give it any attention at all, sin will make its home within us and we'll never be rid of it. So look at verse 2b. In those days, Jesus ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. I promised you that I would talk about fasting tonight. And this is the perfect place. You see, Jesus was fasting in this passage. And fasting, as you've heard me say a million times, is a spiritual discipline that is clearly taught in Scripture. Well, we see it here and we see it in other places in Jesus' life. But Jesus himself said, when you fast. He didn't say if you fast. It was never supposed to be a negotiable for us. He expected it to be part of our spiritual life. And he demonstrated it in his life and in his ministry. Uh, fasting, one writer writes, says it's a voluntary abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. It's important that you remember that fasting without prayer is simply a diet. Biblical fasting is denying ourselves food in the interest of pursuing and hearing from the Lord. I like this quote from John Piper. He said, Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of homesickness for God. Christian fasting is not only the spontaneous effect of superior satisfaction in God, it is also a chosen weapon against every force in the world that would take that satisfaction away. Moses fasted for 40 days. David fasted and mourned the death of Saul, the death of his child. Uh, he fasted for, for Abner. Uh, Elijah fasted 40 days. Ahab fasted. Darius fasted. Daniel fasted often. Esther fasted on behalf of her people. Ezra fasted and wept for the sins of the returning remnant. Nehemiah fasted and mourned over the, the broken walls of, of Jerusalem. 
The people of Nineveh fasted. Uh, Anna fasted. The disciples of John fasted. Cornelius, I studied this this week. Cornelius was fasting when he had a vision from God. And he encountered the angel of God. And it says, he repeats it over and he says, I was fasting when this happened. The elders in Antioch fasted before sending Paul off and Barnabas. Paul fasted three days after his Damascus Road encounter. Paul fasted 14 days while he was at sea. We have over and over and over biblical evidence of fasting. Fasting, I believe, and this is just my personal belief, and I, I, I know it by experience, it strengthens your spirit. When we fast, we deny the flesh. We starve the flesh, and we deny our bodily appetites. We talked about it several weeks ago. We talked about how you don't need 40 days of eating nothing like Jesus. Maybe start with one meal. Maybe start with a half a day of not eating. If you're a sugar addict or a fast food addict, give up one of those. Give up sugar. Give up fast food. Those things are not good for your body anyway. Remember, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Through fasting, the body becomes a servant instead of a master. How many of you are mastered by your appetites? Fasting, we teach our body that we can say no to its fleshly appetites. We teach our flesh that we rule, not it. When we fast, the spirit is being fed and the flesh is being starved. And we see it in this story that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. I'm sure he was hungry. He hadn't eaten in six weeks. But he, he may have been hungry, but the word of God says he came out of that time, out of that time of fasting, filled with the Holy Spirit. He was hungry, but he was full of the Holy Spirit. Church, I really believe that that is part of our problem today in the church. Why are these seats not packed? Why are we not all here hungering for more of the Holy Spirit? You know why? Because we're feeding our flesh. We're allowing our flesh to rule. And as a result, we're not hungry for the Spirit anymore. We're not hungry for the things of God anymore. We feed our bellies and starve our spirit, man. John Piper says, why should the perfect Son of God go without? Why did he have to fast? To demonstrate that he was not enslaved by anything but God. I love that. Your spiritual power will be weakened to the degree that you can't say no to your bodily appetites. Physical appetites are not evil, but when they usurp the rule in your body, your spiritual power will decline. Verse 3, and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. You say, "Real? what is the big deal with that? Jesus being hungry after fasting for 40 days is perfectly okay. It's a, it's a legitimate need. And, and what's the big deal if he would turn a rock into bread? I, I don't understand what the big deal is there. But you see, the point is, that's what the enemy does. He comes along when we have a legitimate need. And he suggests to us that there are other ways of getting that need met apart from trusting in God. Satan was trying to get Jesus to step out in his own power and act apart from the word of God. And he waits. Can I tell you? He's calculated. He waits until there's a need in your life that's crying out to be filled. I need attention. My husband isn't giving me attention. He's not paying attention to me. And here comes a man 
who says all the right things, who does all the right things in your moment of weakness, in your moment of need, when that need is crying out to be filled, you turn to that temptation and, and you give in to the power of the enemy instead of saying, I have this need and it's legitimate, but I'm going to refuse to meet that need in an illegitimate way. It's drug abuse. It's alcoholism. I don't want to feel. I'm hurting right now. I'm in pain right now. And rather than turn to God with a legitimate need to be known, to be loved, to be filled, we turn to an enticement from the enemy. Oh, just drink a little bit. Take the edge off. Here, shoot up with this. You don't need to feel anymore. You deserve this. You have a right to this. Poor you. Look at you. Come on. Fulfill this legitimate need in an illegitimate way. And then the bondage. The shackles go on. And he has you right where he wants you. To me, we work with men who have sex addiction, and that's what happens. They, they, they have this need to be known, and at the core of their being, they feel worthless. They feel like if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't love me. And so rather than express that need, rather than let people into that need, rather than develop intimacy and a true connection with God and with others, that they meet that need in an illegitimate way. They get a quick fix. They turn to another woman. They turn to a prostitute. They turn to, to pornography to get a thrill, to get a, a, a need met illegitimately instead of turning to God or staying in the bounds of a marriage where that need can be fulfilled legitimately. Can you hear the shackles? If you're the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Can't you almost hear the devil's goading? Look at you, Jesus. You haven't eaten anything in 40 days. Your father obviously doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's not meeting your needs, Jesus. Take care of yourself. Take matters into your own hands. Turn those stones into bread. It was an enticement to distrust God and his provision. He wanted Jesus to feel sorry for himself and take matters into his own hands. Come on, Jesus. If you are the Son of God, why isn't he taking care of you? God had clearly just said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the, the devil wants him to question his identity and question the love of the Father. Some commentators say it's not about uh, throwing doubt on his identity, but rather it could be better translated, since you are the Son of God, in other words, since you're the Son of God, prove it. Prove it by turning these stones into bread. David Gusick said the temptation was basically this. Since you're the Messiah, why are you so deprived? Do a little something for yourself. If you're so loved by the Father, why isn't he helping you? Take matters into your own hands. You can't trust him to take care of you. Doesn't he do the same to us? If you're the son of God, why isn't your father helping you? Why is your life so hard if your heavenly father loves you so much? You need to do something about it. 
Go numb that thing. Go, go take care of it in your own way. To be tempted by the devil. The devil said to him. Do you know that word devil? You've heard me say it a million times. Is diabolos. It, it, it means diabolos. One who comes alongside to throw. Dia, two. He's separating. He's dividing. It, it, it means tra to traduce, to slander, to accuse, to defame. I had to look up the word traduce. It means to speak badly of or to tell lies about, so to damage someone's reputation. Do you know that Satan is the father of lies? And that's what he does. He comes alongside of us and, and he, he slanders or he accuses God before us. He defames God. He speaks badly about him or tells lies so as to damage his reputation. Rhea, he doesn't love you. If, if you are the son, a child of God, why isn't he taking care of you? Why isn't he providing for you, Rhea? And he tells lies to damage and defame God before me. And he gets me to question God's faithfulness and to take things into my own hands hands rather than resting in his goodness and trusting him. The word diabolos means to divide. In this case, the devil was tempting Jesus by taking the cre uh, created God-given desire like hunger and distorting it so that he can divide Jesus from his father. You see, that's what he does. He's constantly trying to disrupt our relationship between God and man. He tempts us hoping we'll take the bait and disobey God and as a result forfeit our power and authority. You see, we can't forfeit our sonship. That's a given. It's a gift of grace. But we can forfeit power and authority. Command these stones to be turned to bread. You see, eating is a legitimate need. Satan appealed to a legitimate need, a legitimate desire, suggesting he meet it in an illegitimate way. And he does the same to us. Ironside says, to have yielded would have been to accept a suggestion from Satan and take himself out of the hand of God. But Jesus didn't fail. He didn't take the bait. He countered it. And look how he countered it. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. It is written. Jesus is basically saying, Satan, you say this, but here's what God says. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a phrase that was really popular in the Christian circles. It went like this. If God said it, God said it no. I believe it, and that settles it. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. That's basically what Jesus is saying here. Satan, I know what you want me to believe, but here's what I know. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, uh, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, I'm hungry right now, Satan, but God said, and I believe it, and that settles it. God said that man, that I do not live by bread alone, that I might be hungry for bread right now, but there's a hunger deeper inside of me that only God can fulfill, and I'm going to live by his word alone and he told me to he led me out into the wilderness by his spirit and when he says it's time to eat I will eat because man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God can I tell you that you do not live by, by the acceptance or the approval of somebody else you do not live by the next meal you're going to eat you do not live by success and the amount of money in your bank account you do not live about how great your marriage is you live and you thrive and you have your being by the word of God that's where power comes from. That's where life comes from. That's where we draw our sustenance and our well-being. 
And if you're looking for it in any place else, I promise you, you will be sorely disappointed. It is not in a bottle. It is not in a man. It is not in a drink. It is not in a drug. It is not in the next sale at Boston store. It is in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's in his word because the entrance of his word brings life. 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 Ooh, I got to get through this scripture. Jesus is saying that he would not allow a legitimate desire to take priority over the word of God in his life. He wasn't about to budge. He had determined to obey God and no fleshly need would ever drive him away from the total trust in God and in his word. Verse 5, when that temptation failed, the devil tried a different tactic. Taking him up on a high mountain, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory for it's been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, this will all be yours. <laughs> this could all be yours. Just worship me. Bow down before me. The devil is constantly looking for a change of command. He was after Jesus' loyalty, and he's after ours as well. He wants us to veer from complete devotion and loyalty to God and bow down to him and his way. Here we see again, Diabolos is trying to divide Jesus from his father, trying to get him to act independently from his father and to take things into his own hands. He was saying, Jesus, all this could be yours. It was already his. Yes, it had been surrendered by, by Adam and this world. He, he's the God of this world, Satan is, so it did belong to him temporarily, but ultimately it belongs to God. And he was saying to Jesus, you know what, Jesus, you don't have to go to that cross. You can avoid all that suffering, Jesus. You don't want to suffer, do you? Just bow down before me and I'll give this all to you. There's an easy way out, glory without pain. It's not about obedience, Jesus. There's a shortcut to glory. Can I tell you, there's not a shortcut to glory. We want glory, but we don't want it to cost us anything. We avoid suffering at all costs. We want our misery to be alleviated. But Jesus lived his life refusing to take an easy way out. And his followers must do the same. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross, a place of suffering, and follow me. Satan, again, was enticing Jesus to renounce his allegiance to the Father and bow down to worship him. Momentary pleasure gained at long-term loss. A moment's pleasure, a lifetime of consequence. Verse 8, Jesus answered, get behind me, Satan. Oh, I know who this is now. I'm, I'm not unaware this is you, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him serve. Again, he, ser he quotes another verse about Israel in the wilderness. They were commanded to worship God and God alone, but they got caught up worshiping uh, other little g-gods. They got pulled into adultery, and their life was a disaster as a result. Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, worship God and God alone. Verse 9, here he's going to test God's promises and question his faithfulness. He brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle, and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quotes Psalm 91, or he misquotes it. He says, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. The last temptation was appealed to test God's promises and question his faithfulness. See if God really meant what he said. Come on, Jesus. 
Did God really mean that he'll throw yourself down? You're, you're the Messiah. People are waiting for a Messiah. Be Superman, you know. Just throw yourself down here and see if God will save you. See if he'll send his angels to charge over you. It was an enticement to display a flashy exhibition of power. To test God's care and his faithfulness. The whisper that God can't be trusted put him to test. It was a temptation to prove he was who he says he was, a superhero kind of act, like Superman. Prove he was faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Prove that you're the Messiah. Prove it to you. Let's see how powerful you are. And Jesus replied, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You see, Jesus understood the devil wanted him to put God to the test. The whisper was, do you really believe God will protect you. Do you really believe God means what he says? Do you really believe he'll keep his word? The answer is yes. To put God to the test means we call into question his faithfulness to keep his promises. It's time to go, and I want to leave you. I want to get you out, but I have so much more I want to say, so let me just try to summarize it. I'm in this place in my life. I was telling Davey last night that I'm in this place in my life where I feel like God is speaking something to me, showing me something that I, I can't grasp. It's like trying to hold on to a cloud, you know. I just can't keep slipping through my fingers. It keeps slipping through my understanding. And I just feel like something is there that I haven't quite, in, quite grasped yet. It all started with that scripture that you hear me quote all the time. His pleasant path leads to pleasant places. Nate and Lisa made me a tray for Christmas that I just cherish that has that verse on it. God's pleasant path leads to pleasant places. And I, I'm telling you, I, I wish I could convey this to you like I, I really understand it. That God's ways really, really work. That he means what he says. That he is not a man that he should lie. That his word, the Bible, is true. It's the only truth we can trust. That anything else, Karen, Karen gave such a great illustration. May I, may I use it? She, I, was, I had coffee with her the other day, and she, she gave this beautiful illustration. She was talking about virtual reality. Do, do are you familiar with virtual reality? Dave and I, in our training, one of the, the big things that are coming out right now is virtual reality for pornography. And um, they, they, did a, they put virtual reality glasses on, and, and they wanted to demonstrate how real this was, especially with pornography. It's like you have a woman, a real woman, standing in front of you. You, you, you really, it's, it's so real. And they wanted us to know how real it really was, and so they had to the, put on these virtual reality glasses, and, and, and the, it looked like you were standing on a cliff. You weren't. You were standing in a room this size, and, and you could easily step, but you were terrified to step because it was so real. It seemed so real with these virtual reality glasses. You, you felt like you were going to immediately fall over the cliff, and so you were terrified to move because even though you knew logically <laughs> this is fake, it seemed real. It was a virtual reality. Well, Karen was telling me about virtual reality. And she said, Rhea, it's like those glasses that you put on, and, and it's an alternate reality. It's not real, but it feels real. She said, that's what this world is. And she said, if only we just take off the goggles and we'd say, ah, oh, the Lord is near. 
He's right here. Can I tell you, the Bible says that we are seated in the heavenlies with God. That, 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 that Satan is under our feet. He's under our feet. That everything that belonged to Jesus, we are joint heirs in. <laughs> that we have an inheritance that's so amazing. But we live in this virtual reality and we're like sucked into it, thinking it's actually real. That we have to succumb to temptation. That there's actually something better than God's word. That there is something that works better and is more fulfilling and more enticing and, and more and better than God's word. It's a virtual reality. Take off the goggles. Take off the goggles. Because that's what Satan does. He puts those goggles on you and he entices you to believe something is real that is not. You can find satisfaction outside of God. He stands in opposition of God. Jesus demonstrated that we can have an unswerving allegiance to God. He refused to do anything that would demonstrate a lack of trust towards God's care. He was convinced that God was completely trustworthy, and we must convince ourselves of the same. We must convince ourselves of the same. Jesus was dedicated to pleasing God and committed to walking in his ways, but it required self-denial. It required self-denial. So let's just flesh this out in closing. How do we overcome temptation? When Martin Luther was asked how he overcame the devil, he replied, well, when he comes knocking at the door of my heart and asks who lives here, dear Lord, uh, he, and asks who lives here, the, Lord, the dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. R. Ken Hughes says, when Christ fills our lives, Satan has no interest, no entrance. We have to live consumed with Jesus and focused on pleasing the Father. Scripture is clear. Jesus overcame the temptation of the devil because he was full of the Holy Spirit. We need to position ourselves under the spout where the glory comes out. We need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Scripture says, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. It means a continuous, ongoing filling. Lastly, Jesus overcame temptation of the devil with Scripture by using the Word of God. The third requirement for fighting off temptation is to fill your life with the Word of God. You can't quote Scripture to the devil if you don't know Scripture. You've got to fill yourself. You, you've got to fill your life with the Word of God. Memorize it. Get it in you so that you are prepared when that temptation comes to recognize something that's not of God and to come into agreement with God in his word. Father, I just thank you for every man and woman in this room. I thank you for your word that it is so powerful. It has a power to transform us, to transform us, to change us, to make us more like you. And I pray, Lord, for the deposit of your word tonight that it would stay in us richly. Lord God, that the enemy would not be able to snatch it away the troubles and cares of this world would not be able to choke it out, Lord God, that it would produce a harvest. Not 30, not 60, but a hundredfold harvest, Lord, I'm asking for that. Lord, draw us to yourself, I pray. Reveal yourself to us in new and powerful ways. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.